It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. This show is part of the Head Stuff Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to Basically, I'm your host Stephanie Preisner and today in studio I have with me my first ever time to meet a Paralympic gold medalist, Ellen Keane. Thank you so much for coming to studio. Thank you for having me. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm so glad we got to do this. It was so hectic when I came home. Um, There was just so much to do and so many people wanting to see me that I didn't even know what was going on. So I'm glad we finally got to do this. Did you, were you really not expecting to win? I think everyone at home was like, she's definitely going to do it. She's definitely <laughs> going to do it. Um, I, it's a weird one because like... Sorry, for people who are not listening, Ellen Keane, tell, tell them who you are <laughs> and what, what what we are talking about in case they are living on another planet. Um, so I'm a Paralympic swimmer. So I, ha- I was born without my left arm from below the elbow and I've been to four Paralympic Games. I won So a- you were, it wasn't amputated? No. You, okay, great. Yeah, so it I was didn't know that. just born like that. My parents didn't know it was going to happen it was just one of those things um but like because of the Paralympics and para sport I learned like so many people are born like this and it's to do with um the umbilical cord wrapping around the arm and it's just oh, okay. not developing yeah wow. so that's that's actually what it is so it's not genetic at all it's just one of those weird things Physical that sometimes thing, yeah. happens um and yeah so I went to Rio in 2016 uh won my first ever medal which was a bronze so what was the f- so when did you decide that swimming was going to be the sport? Like, did you try different sports as a kid? Yeah, I tried. So I did football, I did GAA. Um, I was a member of Scully Connell in Clontarf. And I also did dancing. So I was really into hip hop. I did. I competed with hip hop as well. And when I started swimming, um, I was always juggling hip hop and swimming. And then eventually I had to decide between one of them so I chose swimming because I just saw kind of more of an opportunity there with it um, and I'm glad I did because I went to my I first... was like competitive athletic was that always something like when you were saying like I I, I saw more of a potential with it mm. like was the Olympics on your mind Um. yes and no I think it was more to do with because when I was a kid like disability really wasn't anything that people talked about it was mm-hmm. a real taboo and it was a real kind of you can't really do much if you have if you have a disability so I think it's kind of sad because I look at dancing and the reason I did choose swimming over dancing is because I was like I'm never going to make it as a dancer so I might as well try and make it as a swimmer Um, and I knew about the Paralympics so I chose that route because there was an opportunity there but like I, I'm glad I, I did, and it brought me all over the world, and I've met so many people. And I went to my first games when I was 13. I went to London 2012 uh, when I was 17. Then, as I said, Rio in 2016, and I finally come home with a gold medal it's in the 2020 like. games. So, talk to us about the journey. So, I used to swim competitively. Okay. Um, and like when I was a teenager through Swim Ireland, and then you know, like all these horrendous galas, I really didn't Who was enjoy your it. Club? Malice Swans. Okay. Yeah. And then the junior club was a Signets, but there wasn't Signets when I was there. Um, So I know the torture of, and sometimes it is torture. Like I very much remember being in the pool being like, what am I going to do now? Like there's only four strokes. I've done them all for like an hour. Just the tedious tediousness of it. And we used to have these things called swim P3 players. They came out like when we were in our teenage years and it was this revolution. Like you could listen to music in the water, but it was like always not great. And you could still kind of hear the water. The technology was very new. So it's very, and I remember distinctly like losing at galas or not, you don't lose, but like not beating my personal best mm-hmm. and just this just the grueling lonely sadness of it because you win on your own but you also lose on your own yeah and I think that's what really drew me to you because obviously other people went over with Team Ireland yeah but because I've swam I kind of followed your journey tell us about long before the Olympics like how competitive swimming how you got into competitive swimming um so I did my lessons when I was like two I think I started my lessons and that was purely because my 
parents didn't want to be afraid of the disability. So I did that with my siblings. And then I went to a disability competition in Northern Ireland when I was about seven. And I wasn't part of a club or anything by then. Um, I just started doing lane swimming in the CRC. And then I went to this competition and I just loved how freeing it was. I loved being in control of what was going on and I loved going fast and it turned out I was quite talented at it. So yeah, that's when the grueling training started. started. So you start from like one session a week to two to three to four to five. All of a sudden you're doing like 10 sessions a week. You're getting up at quarter past four in the morning and you're still in school. So you're going training at five to seven. You're coming back eating, going to school. I remember that training in the morning and then like not being able to go back going straight from the pool to school and we all used to have like a litre of milk and like all the swimmers <laughs> just be like walking up to school drinking a litre of milk and yeah, coaches I, forcing us to have breakfast literally and like one of those things that they always say is a really good recovery drink is chocolate milk because you get the carbs and you get the protein Yeah. Um, so I yeah I drank so much milk I drank so much <laughs> yeah. chocolate milk in my time Um, but then yeah I'd go to school come back try maybe to do a bit of homework go back swimming again and I did that for so long and it was only kind of when I started to learn to drive that my parents got a bit of a backseat and they got a little bit of a break but until then it was always them bringing me and you don't really realise the sacrifices that your family make so swimming is one of those sports that is usually kind of family orientated if one kid swims usually all the kids swim but I was the only swimmer my brothers and my sister didn't get involved in it so my family also had to juggle all their other interests as well and like when I was when I was maybe training that morning my brothers couldn't have friends over that night and Oh, wow. It, yeah, like it's a lot of sacrifices that other people make that you don't realize. Um, so you, you, it is an individual sport. You are on your own, but you have all you these can't other really people. You can do it on your own. Yeah, you can't do it on your own. And you have your team behind you as well. So, like in Tokyo itself, the stands were empty, but that nearly made it um, nicer as a team because we were just always supporting each other. You could hear certain voices in the crowd, which you mightn't have heard before. And even like when I finished and I looked up, I could see my teammates straight away. So that was really, really nice. Yeah, we'll get to, I can't wait to get to Tokyo. <laughs> um, so how does it, how do you, what do you have to do to qualify for the Olympics? Um, or so, the Paralympics? Do you like to differentiate and call them the Paralympics? Or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the reason why it's so important for me to kind of, educate people in the difference between the Olympics and the Paralympics. And the Special Olympics is different again. Yeah, yeah. So the Special Olympics is about participation. It's for people with learning disabilities or intellectual disabilities and it's more about participation and they do an amazing job and they get to travel the world and they do have really great athletes but there's no there's no like in-depth qualifying criteria there so it's it's not as difficult Um, whereas the Paralympics the para in Paralympics um, means parallel. So it's parallel to the Olympic cycle. You are every four years like the Olympic cycle. You go to Europeans like um, people aspiring to the Olympics would and the world championships would be kind of the same year as well. So every year you'd have a major championships and the year before an Olympic or Paralympic Games, it's usually a world championships and it's kind of from there and your world ranking you could get an opportunity to kind of get a slot for Ireland. So that's why how Paralympics works. It's you try and get your world ranking up high and get a slot for Ireland, but then you have to get a qualifying time as well. And then if say there is only two or three slots and they're all female, but there's five female swimmers who have the qualifying time, it's then Team Ireland have to decide who is the biggest medal potential here. Who are we going to choose to bring away? So that's why even like in a Paralympic year, you could... You could have the qualifying time, but you're still kind of waiting until the very end to find out if you're going. And that happened to um, a few of the lads on the team. They just didn't know for a long time if they were going. And they probably, I think, only found out maybe June, which is very oh, wow. close to the Games. Yeah. Because it, it was up to Team Ireland to decide who it they wasn't, were. It wasn't just up to Team Ireland. It was more waiting to see if the bigger countries had given back slots. Um, there's an opportunity for a wild card there. So if the IPC, which is the International Paralympic Committee, see potential for that swimmer or see a benefit for that swimmer being there, they'll hand out a wild card for them. Um, and that might be because the swimmer might be able to do loads of events 
and they want they want more people competing in it and more okay. disabilities shown. Um, so it could go you could go down that route as well. So I got a wild card in 2012, um, and I didn't find out about that until the June time, and it was the most stressful thing ever. I had my qualifying time, but it was just a waiting game for me to find out if I was going. Um, oh, wow, okay. And you can spend like I. I in particular found it so difficult watching people trying to qualify and them them waiting because I know how hard it is. You work four or five years of your life for the opportunity to even go to a Games and then you mightn't even get there and then that's your journey ends before really you're, you never even reached your goal. Right, okay. And so if you, so let's say, let's take the Tokyo cycle. So Tokyo was this year, 2021, but it should have been 2020, right? Yeah. So we'll say Tokyo 2020. So when did you start aiming to get to Tokyo? Right after Rio. Right after Rio, yeah. But the cycle itself was a bit strange as well because we were supposed to have a world championships in 2017. Right, okay. But that was in uh, Mexico City, which was at altitude. And I have asthma and a few other people, I think, on the team have breathing difficulties. And uh, at altitude, it's harder to breathe. So the team made a decision not to send anyone. So... um, our staff made a decision and the medical doctor had made a decision it was, wasn't was safe, there was no point going. So we didn't have a World Championships in 2017. And then in 2018, we had a European Championships, which was in Dublin. It was the first ever para event ever to be in Dublin. Oh, class. Yeah, it was so cool. And um, Allianz were the, the main sponsor of that event and I'm an Allianz ambassador as well. So I was kind of plastered everywhere. So that was kind of my first experience of kind of the pressure of Ellen's going to try win gold um, and I kind of went with it until maybe like a few days before the event started and I was like oh oh god, oh god I actually <laughs> here's have to all win. the pressure um, and thankfully like I, I did actually manage to win that gold medal but my main concern was just don't get disqualified like I can win this gold medal if I don't get disqualified and that's... what are the things that can get you disqualified um, so in swimming um there's different strokes. So uh, for breaststroke, which is my stroke, you can get DQ'd for rocking on the block. Um, you can get DQ'd if you don't. So because I have one hand in swimming, you have to touch with two hands. So you have to make it look like you're touching with two hands and okay. then you can drop the elbow and turn. Um, but my main concern was rocking on the block because I knew technically I wasn't going to get disqualified, but you're nervous and you, Does rocking on the block mean like where you kind of go back to more propel yourself forward? Yeah, yeah. But like because you're nervous and once they say take your marks, it's between the take your marks and the whistle that you can get DQ'd. But that's when you have to be as still as possible. So I was like, just don't rock, just don't rock. And then they said go. So And once they say go, can you pull back then and propel yeah. yourself forward? Yes. Yeah, okay, yeah, perfect. Yeah. Um, you dive in and you just go for it really. And are there different rules for different disabilities within swimming within the Paralympics so like yours specifically there you said because you only have one arm you have to touch with both arms so you have to make it look like what if someone had one leg or different disabilities how do they yeah so if you were to look at the start sheet for an event it will say like my name my classification which is S9 SB8 SM9 and then in brackets beside it so in for for swimming, obviously, to make it as fair as possible, if you were to think about it like boxing and the weight categories, um, you would separate them into weight categories to make it as fair as possible. So in swimming, it's how disabled is this person? How much does that affect them in the water or in training? And so one to 10 would be physical disabilities. An S1 would be someone who's really severely disabled and an S10 would be somebody who would be least disabled. Okay. So I'm an S9. And then for breaststroke, I go down one because there's only one to nine classification for breaststroke, but there's one to 10 for every other stroke. Okay, great. Yeah, so I'm a nine. And then there's S11 to S13 for visual impairments. So S11 would be someone who's completely blind. S12 is someone with visual impairment and S13 is a visual impairment, but not enough to be 12 or 11. Okay. And then an S14 is an intellectual impairment as well. So as that can kind of get confused with like the Special Olympics, but because there is, it's so hard to qualify, it is a really elite standard for those athletes. Um, so they would still have to get all those qualifying times. Okay. Um, but for swimming itself, as I said, you'd have my classification and then in brackets, there could be some numbers. So those numbers are my exemptions. And if you were to look at like the table of contents, it will have the list of exemptions. So I'm allowed to start with one hand on the block, whereas... 
an able-bodied swimmer, that's you have to have two hands on the block. Yeah. Um. So you're you're a swimmer yourself. You know you have to have two hands on the block. You have to turn with both hands. You have to finish. If you're doing butterfly, you have to have arms even and steady. Yes. So you have to kind of mimic able-bodied swimming. But obviously, logically, I can't start with two arms on the block. So I have that exemption. Yes. But that's the only kind of difference. Yeah. So there could be athletes who start in the water and they don't have any arms and they'll have like a string falling from the block and they're allowed like have that in their mouth. Whereas I'm not allowed to have a string to pull me up on the left side if I was to do backstroke. Oh, yes. OK. Yeah. And then um, there's athletes who are allowed to have assistance getting onto the block. So they'll have a helper help them get onto the block, but then they'll hold they'll hold their kind of body. And as soon as they say, take your marks, go, they have to release their hands. They're not right, like okay. kind of push or pull. It's just more of a let go. Just a support, yeah. Yeah. And it, was it up to like when you, when it became clear that you had the capacity to become a Paralympic athlete and, and win medals, was it up to you to learn all of this classification or did you have a coach or how does that all work? No, so that is where Paralympics Ireland come in. They would have a classification officer who would give you... um a national classification so you have to have a national classification before you can get an international classification and when you get an international classification that's when you can compete internationally and so we have someone there who will go through the process of what it takes to be classified what you need to do so as I have no arm my classification process would be getting measured um, I'd lie on a on a physio bed with my arms in a certain position and they would just measure all my bones and then it's based on whatever measurements they come up with that's my classification so this arm from my elbow to the end of my stump that has to be a quarter of this forearm so my right forearm right okay um, and that, that puts me in an S9, S8 but if I was to be a little bit longer I'd be uh, an SB9 in breaststroke um, and then if I had a wrist I would be an S10 so it's okay. So that's yeah. how it's fascinating, isn't it? How they <laughs> sort of it is, and it's so complicated. And um, classification itself can be one of those stressful things because it's completely out of your control. Yes, and it happens uh, maybe a few days before a competition, and you, you could can change. You could go up or you could go down. So that's why, like, I could be racing, and there could be someone in that has never I've never raced against before because they have come down or they've gone up. Um, but it's usually if they've had an operation or if their disability, their certain changed. disabilities get worse as they get older. Okay. So that's why they might drop. And so, and at what point were you, did you become aware of the time that you needed to make to qualify for Tokyo? Um, or did, I, would you know that all along? No, I wouldn't have known it all along. But based on previous years, I knew I was very capable of getting it. I, I wasn't. It Can was, you tell us what the times are? Um, I think for Tokyo for me I had to go like a 130 for 100 breaststroke so okay. it wasn't it wasn't fast for me um, and what's your personal best the time I went in Tokyo so it was a 119 but before that it was a 122 so you beat your personal best by three seconds at Tokyo yeah <laughs> oh my god amazing yeah but from someone like looking out from the outside kind of looking in they'd be like wow like they've dropped so much time like how is that possible but I was a 122 for 10 years it was 10 years of me trying to get lower and lower um, do you think it was just the adrenaline the whole situation that did it or no I honestly think the reason I hadn't dropped time before is because it was mentally I wasn't ready for it mentally I found it too hard I just my body was ready I just wasn't kind of not right in the mind but I wasn't ready for it in a weird way I just didn't believe in myself enough right. so when it comes to what you said earlier about everyone knew I was going to win the gold medal um, had the games been in 2012 or in 2020 I don't think I would have because I wasn't ready what the pandemic did to me was it gave me a break. It gave me perspective. It gave me time to reflect on how far I've come. And it gave me an opportunity to kind of grow my mental state. And I knew it was my weakness all along. So when it got actually to Tokyo, I I really didn't have any doubts. I knew I was doing everything that I needed to do. I knew in training, I was in the best shape of my life. And as it got closer to the date, I just was getting so bored. I just wanted to hurry up yeah, and do it because I, I saw knew you on I could Instagram. do it. I follow you on Instagram and like, <laughs> you were just so ready. You were like, oh, come on. And Literally. I followed, you had to do that. Talk to us about, yeah, the process of getting to Tokyo then. So you qualify. Um, 
talk to us about Team Ireland and, and, and getting your kit and then going to the camp and talk us through the whole journey. Well, it, like the pandemic itself kind of made it a little less fun because right, okay. so many things were delayed. What would usually happen would be like we would have a kit day and everyone would come and meet other teammates and everyone would kind of come together and celebrate and get to know each other before the games. Um, and that obviously couldn't happen because of all the restrictions. So had you met your teammates all of them before? At no, oh, so wow. I'd met all the swimmers before, but there are... How many swimmers went? Um, How many swimmers went? There was five of us. Yes, there was five of us. Okay. <laughs> Two boys and three girls. Um, And like we had been training and gone on camps before and that kind of had been narrowed down as well because there was two other guys on the team who were trying to qualify and just didn't manage to get the times. So, so hard. So hard, but also like as a team, like we we wanted them there and we we could we feel it like, too yes yeah. and we'd know how much hard work they'd put in and that extra year as well and watching them just be so close, close. Yeah, yeah and not get it was really hard to watch um, but they were so supportive of it, the whole thing as well um, so then you get your kit we uh, for us we got our kit just kind of in and out in a media day just kind of in and out right um, and the, what does the kit consist of? The kit consists of just like tracksuits, kind of um, a medal ceremony kit that you know. <laughs> it's You get a specific medal ceremony outfit and you know that you're going to need that for the final session. Um, and just t-shirts and shorts. And for swimming, we get one racing suit and hat and goggles. Um, but for like athletics and stuff, they'd get their slings and their yeah. running outfits. I don't really know what they're That's really cool though. Yeah, I love like I love merch. I know, so do I. <laughs> and so it's so exciting, exciting as well because um, it starts to make it a little bit more real. Yeah. But the difference between our kit this time and like last times was uh, we just got so many face masks. We got so many, so much oh, yeah. hand sanitizer. We got like all of those things to try to keep us safe. We also got these goggles that we had to wear on the plane. So they're kind of like scientist goggles. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, because if we touched our eye, obviously the virus can, can go through. Yeah. yeah, so on the plane itself, <laughs> when we were going over, we'd have our face masks on and these goggles. And everyone else on the plane didn't have them, but Team Ireland So did. were you on just, like a, on just a normal flight with other people who were heading to Tokyo for... Yeah. Obviously not holidays, but... Well, uh, to get into Japan itself, you couldn't... Nobody could actually get into Japan without uh, an accreditation for the games. Okay. So even, like, media would have a media accreditation for the games. Like, a, a random person couldn't get a flight, flight to, Japan to Japan and get in, yeah. Taking a break from the episode to bring you an ad because this podcast is only possible because of our sponsor. Supporting our sponsor supports the podcast... And let me tell you about who they are. Rockwell's financial planning service is designed for anyone who feels as if they kind of need to just put a shape on their finances. I don't know if you're like me, you kind of feel like, oh, my finances are all over the place. I need to kind of start adulting. This is the service for you. Whether you're like a senior executive in a multinational company or a small business owner or just a young couple looking to get a head start in your financial planning, a single person who wants to make plans for their future, so they consider themselves financial doers rather than financial planners, which I really like because it's active. It's not just like um, namby-pamby sort of making a plan. doesn't matter where you are in the country. They're happy to help you in person or over Zoom. Pensions and investments are really important, but they're absolutely useless without knowing why you're using them and what you're using them for. They are in the outcomes business. They are in the business of results. So it's not just about the plan, it's about the action. So they use this like award-winning investment advice to help their clients achieve their goals. And they have a special offer for you listening right now, for Basically listeners. If you go to rockwellfinancial.ie forward slash basically, you can book a complimentary financial planning session today. You'll get a cash flow model which outlines any gaps in your finances and they'll give you the first steps to achieving your specific goals. I highly recommend Rockwell and I think as a Basically listener, you should definitely check it out. It's free. It's going to put you on the right path to getting your finances in order. That's it. Go to rockwellfinancial.ie forward slash basically. While I have you here and I have your captive attention, I want to let you know that if you are a Basically supporter, if you are a Headstuff Plus member, I have an opportunity for you. So from now on, I want to change how my show was introduced. Usually I say, hello and welcome to Basically. I'm your host, Stephanie Preisner, and today in studio I have, you know that bit, you've heard it all. From now on, I want a different 
podcast supporter to introduce my show because I really am grateful to the people who support the podcast. They mean that, you know, their five euro a month means that I can have a producer working full time on the show. And it's just I really, really am grateful. So I'm going to give you an address and I want you to send a voice note that says, Hi, my name is... Mary and I'm a Headstuff supporter and the reason I like listening to the show is because blah 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 you are listening to basically and then I'll come in. So what I want you to do is send your voice note to www.speakpipe.com forward slash basically. That's speak s-p-e-a-k pipe p-i-p-e dot com forward slash basically and when you go to that site what comes up basically is this uh, this big button that says start recording and you just record directly into that and then it gets sent to us and then you will be introducing the show. Thank you so much for your support. I'm Trevor. I'm Ed. And I'm Andrea. And we are The, the Cinestream Club. Club. Where we take a movie that society deems a classic and put it to the Cinestream test. Where we ask all the tough questions like... Does this movie make any sense? Why isn't Tom Hanks in this movie? How many sandwiches are in this film? What kind of watches are people wearing? Was that sex scene really necessary? Says my mother. What trivia does Trev know in Trev's Trivia? What trivia do I know in Trev's Trivia? That's what I said. I, oh, okay. <laughs> All these questions and more will be answered every fortnight in the Cine Stream Club. Available from wherever you get your podcasts. And the Headstuff Podcast Network. So you went to camp first. So tell us what camp is and what it involves. Um, so we went to Fortifentura for a two-week training camp before the games. Um, and there. So sorry, did you leave Dublin to go to Fortifentura to go to Fortifentura straight to Tokyo? Yeah. You didn't come home. Okay, yeah. No, didn't come home. Um, and I'm kind of glad we did as well because it, like two weeks before that even, I live with my boyfriend and he works for Amazon and he was in and out of the office a lot. Right, okay. And I was getting really paranoid. So bef- even two weeks before I went on camp, I asked him not to come home. <laughs> and I, because... That's it. Like your yeah. whole journey could have been like if you got COVID, you were out, right? Yeah. Yeah. If you got COVID, you weren't getting on that plane. And it's all of these things that you've done to make sure that didn't happen. And you nearly have to just take control of absolutely everything. So like I couldn't see my friends. I couldn't see anyone. Thankfully, I had my dog. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I could bring my dog for a walk. But that was kind of the only suppose like contact I had with really anything or anyone um, and then my teammates but it was also you're very aware if you got COVID and you gave it to your teammates you could be the one responsible for them not going to the games okay so yeah. when you were in First Ventura were you all sort of like in lockdown together yeah we were in well yeah so we got to Fort Ventura we, we, all, we all still had why Fort Ventura um, because so we were originally supposed to go to Japan earlier um, but the the facility that we ended up getting was um, outside and they kept getting storms. So if there was a storm when we were training... You wouldn't be allowed to train. We wouldn't be allowed to train for like five days. So it was like a risk that we couldn't take. Um, so we went for... We always go to Fort Ventura on a training camp because we just know the place. Um, the pool is really good. It's within walking distance of your apartment. Um, it's all one complex. And because we've been there so many years... Uh, they were really supportive of us trying to change time zones. So that's why we went to Fort Ventura. We were there for a week of just normal training. And then the following Just the week, swimmers? Yeah, yeah. So where do the other guys who are... What other Team Ireland athletes did we send? Um, we sent athletics, archery, weightlifting, shooting, table tennis. And do they all go on a camp somewhere else? And then yeah, you meet so in Tokyo? They okay. were they were actually in... Um, I can't even think of the name. It was in Japan, but they were already in Japan. Okay. Um, they just went when we were supposed to go before swimming itself. If there was a storm with the water, it was... Yes, okay. Really that, it was, yeah. okay. So you went to Fort Ventura and the first week was just normal time. Yeah, normal time. And then we started to adjust to the time zone. So we had to go to bed an hour earlier every night to try and get on Japan Tokyo time. time, right. Yeah. So, but... How hard is that? But it... It sounds a lot harder than it is, but it's it was easy because we had our own rooms, we were away from any distractions, any family or friends, and we were in complete control. And then we had our physiologist, Kira Sinod O'Connor, who uh, she made up a plan of how we were going to do it. So it involved us wearing these really 
dark sunglasses in the middle of the day to block out the light. As soon as we come into our room, we don't turn on the lights. We have our sunglasses on. Um, turn your phones or your um, screens. screens down to the um, nighttime mode. And even like an hour before bed, I'd come off everything and just like wait to see. kind of read. training your brain to produce yeah. melatonin. And yeah. it's like it would be seven o'clock and I'd be like, I'm so tired. I want to go to sleep. And but it, you've been up training as well, right? Yeah. But even like it was like you can get distracted like and it was just more about being really, really disciplined mm-hmm. and kind of tricking your brain to get used to it and fall asleep. So we had been to Japan before in 2018 and we were supposed to do that before we went. But because we weren't on a camp, we were just at home. We were with our family and our friends. I found it really, really difficult to do. So when I was in Tokyo that time, I couldn't. It took about 10 days for me to adjust to the time zone. But when we eventually got to Japan, because we had gone through that, I think the earliest we went to bed was like seven and the earliest we got up was four or half mm-hmm. three. Um. So we, we got a bulk of maybe like six or seven hours we got onto Japan time. Um, and over there, it took me three days to get out of the jet lag. So it was amazing. It was worth it. Like, And so how, when did you arrive in Tokyo? How many days ahead of your racing? And also, how do you train the whole way up or do you have to give your body? I was fascinated by wondering this. Do you have to like stop training so that you're not too tired ahead of the race or do you keep training the whole way up to it? Yeah, so you do like, you do loads and loads of miles in preparation for games and then the closer it gets to a games, you drop the miles. You still train every day but you don't do high intensity, you don't do hard sessions. It's more like keeping the feel of the water, doing short powerful things so that your body's getting race ready and used to being fast and then you would do kind of race specific sets. So, my whole session could be 1500 meters of just warming up, stand stand up on the block, do a 50 fast and then swim down. And that could be my session for the day. Um, that's why as it got closer to the race, we were doing all these things that are supposed to be fun because they're not hard sessions. Yes, and okay. I was just getting so sick of them. I was like, I just want it to be over. Want it to be over, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, in the lead up, once we, we started to do that the second week in Fortifantura. So we were starting to do our taper, that's what it's called. Um, and then we got to Japan and we just kind of floated up and down because it was getting over jet lag, mm-hmm. getting used to kind of maybe the tiredness that we had even from traveling. Um, but uh, we were only there for, I think we arrived on the 18th of August or the 19th of August. And then the games began on the 24th. So we weren't actually there too long in advance. Right. And you had no family or friends or anyone like anyone with you at all? Um, I actually did <laughs> because my boyfriend is uh, Colin Judge's coach who is the table tennis player. Okay. So yeah, it was just pure just luck. Just coincidence. Yeah, yeah. That he was able to be there to support Colin. And, um, but we were very professional. Like we wouldn't go near each other because you could still catch COVID. No matter how safe you were being, you couldn't be too safe. So I didn't want to be in that position myself. I didn't want to put my teammates in that position. And then I didn't want Colin to be in that position either. So we would see each other from afar or we'd like sit at a table together, but we wouldn't go near each other. Tell us what Tokyo, like what the village is like, just what the whole, what it's like in general Um, as an athlete. As an athlete, like a Paralympic village and an Olympic village is where athletes stay during the game so it is this big kind of apartment complex loads of different apartment blocks surrounded by security um and the security literally is like two layers of security it's kind of like airport security coming in and out um and there's a food hall where all the athletes go and eat kind of like the size of a football pitch is Uh, the food good uh it is until you realize that it's repetitive okay (laughs) um and you get you you kind of eat what you know and what you like because you don't want to try new things yeah, yeah, yeah so for me until I was finished racing I would have pasta for lunch and I'd have noodles for dinner and I had that every single day right well <laughs> and how long were you over there for um we were there for ages so we were in the village we moved into the village on the 21st or 22nd of August and then we didn't leave until the 7th of September wow okay yeah so we were there a long time and um, if you hadn't been, like if you had gotten knocked out, let's say, if you hadn't qualified for the finals, would you have come home earlier or do um, you stay, do you, does everyone have to stay until the end? 
No, we wouldn't have, the swimmers wouldn't have come home earlier because I had like a few different events. Um, and as a team, it was because we were, we were disabled, like we couldn't really carry all the stuff that we had by ourselves. Okay. Um, but also because we were flying British Airways and they had two flights a day. And then because of COVID, they dropped it to one flight a day. And British, um, the British Paralympic team had block booked all the flights. Oh my God. So that's, we actually didn't know when we were coming home until like two days before because we were trying to get flights and we were waiting for GB to release flights or like incredible. other countries to release, release seats because we just, they well, they had to do that. They, I guess, they had yeah. the kind of money to be able to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think British Airways did sponsor their team as well. So they were able to do it. Um, it just meant that we were waiting around a little while after the games. How do you manage the nerves coming up to the final like knowing oh my god I've, this is it now like this is my chance to get gold Um, I didn't actually get nervous until I saw the start sheet come out so the start sheet came out maybe two or three days before the event and as I said about sometimes swimmers drop down classifications so Sophie the girl who came second she used to be in the higher classification and she dropped down because she had surgery um, but she what's her disability she's missing a leg okay yeah so she just doesn't get beaten though so as a as an S not, S10 SB9 she's a world record holder multiple gold medals she'd won gold medals in this event before um, what was the event 100 breaststroke and she just doesn't get beaten and her PB was faster than my PB as well so I saw the start sheet and I literally was like oh god <laughs> this is going to be so hard so you've never raced her before not in breaststroke, no. Um, so I literally was so afraid and I knew how fast she was and I knew how like kind of confident and great she was and like I looked up to her. So it's so hard trying to race somebody who you think is unbeatable. Um, and I started... And would you see her around the village? Like, uh, do, do you talk to other countries' teammates? I know COVID is kind of different, but yeah, what's kind the of, etiquette? Yeah, you'd kind of say hi Um I'll, people tend to get a lot more friendly after the games. <laughs> yeah, I bet. <laughs> yeah, because um, they finish racing and they don't really have to worry about anything anymore. Mm-hmm. But um, I started to have all these thoughts and stuff and then I just kind of went back to, is this in my control? It's not in my control. What is in my control? How I prepare myself for this is in my control. So and I, who kind of taught you that? Is that stuff that you would have done or is there someone on your team who works with sort of the mental preparation for it? Yeah, I have a sports psych, um, Kate Kirby, who would also work with other Olympians and Paralympians. And then we did have uh, kind of like a lifestyle uh, person come in and during COVID especially talk about like, oh, what's in your control here? And it was just more like that and like uh, reading books and looking up to other athletes and realising... The con- everyone always talks about controlling the controllables mm-hmm. and that's where my kind of weakness was I'd usually always get too worried about things out of my control and COVID made me recognise what was and what wasn't in my control so when it came to seeing the start sheet and thinking of Sophie and starting to get panicked and worried I just started to tell myself like this isn't in my control how I prepare is in my control I am capable of beating her and it, like, it was just learning to to tell myself these things and when you tell yourself these positive things they outweigh the negative thoughts that you're kind of having and just it was kind of like nearly a mantra that I was like I can do this and I just kept telling myself that I could do this and even like the night before the race um I wasn't nervous at all and I was nearly nervous that I wasn't nervous I was literally a bit panicked I was like this isn't normal I should be a bit worried now and on the morning where so you do your heat and your final in the same day so what time is the race at? The race was at 11am, I think. What time? Did you sleep that night? I did, yeah. Because I had my, my sleep routine down to a Okay, your sleep routine. Because <laughs> I think I would be like, oh my God, I have this thing tomorrow. I'm not going to sleep properly. Yeah. But you, okay, you've got, you've, you've, okay, so you wake up. Do you have an alarm or do you just wake naturally? No, I have an alarm. You yeah. have an alarm. You yeah. wake up. What do you have for breakfast? Or what is that pre, <laughs> what is the pre-race routine? So the day before I actually do write out every single kind of time I need to be somewhere or what I'm going to do at every single minute of the day nearly. Just because when you have it all written down and like I take a photo of it, make it my wallpaper, you that leaves room for you to just get on with it rather yes, than okay. worrying about what you need to be doing. And I would send that also to my coaches so that they know exactly what I'm doing and they're not worried like where is she, where what is she doing. Yeah. Um. 
So I would work backwards. So I'd know my race is at 11. That means I have to be in the call room where that's where you meet before you go out and race. I'd have to be there at 10.40. How long does it take me to get my racing suit on? Maybe like 20 minutes. So I need to add that in. And then I work back from there, 20 minutes. I need to have 10 minutes to eat something. I need to have... So what time are you eating something? I try and eat something three hours before I race and then Mm -hmm. an hour before I race. So I'd have my breakfast three hours before and then an hour before my race I might have like half a banana and an energy gel or something yeah okay and then um, I do I'm like I need 40 minutes for my swim warm up I need half an hour for my my dry land warm up and that's such a weird phrase because it just means I'm doing gym exercises on the land but and how is call it dry land <laughs> and how is the what is the split between in general like how much work you do in the pool and how much dry land training you do my dry land is like uh, like a yoga session before I get in. It's just a warm but up I mean, my body. But I mean like when you're training in the months running up to like how much training are you doing now? Oh, uh, okay. Um, well, right now, <laughs> not that much. Um, but it would kind of be, I do about seven pool sessions and three gym sessions. So it's right, nearly okay. half. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so back to the morning of the race. And back to the morning of the race. And I'm yeah. getting nervous. <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm not nervous. I have like, I've already made this playlist that I listen to that kind of just what kind of things are on it a lot of Eminem yeah okay great because <laughs> yeah it's so relatable like I know he's rapping about random other things no, but he's but... in a mindset of sort of like yeah taking yeah. control of his life and exactly and that's yeah. what it was all about just to kind of taking control and then I got in I, I did the heat and usually usually I take caffeine so that like I'm a bit more alert um, and I hadn't taken any caffeine for the heat because I knew I wanted to swim during the break or I wanted to sleep during the break and I didn't want to risk taking caffeine and not being able to rest so I didn't take caffeine I got a PB I went a 121 and I came out and uh, When was the heat? The heat was at 11am that day Okay Um, And then I came out and did media and even the reporter was like oh my god you did a PB you must feel amazing I was like I know I can go faster, so yeah. Did you say that? Yeah, I did. Oh, I yeah. was like, I, I know I can go faster, so. um, And then even, like, people people were saying, kind of like, oh. And how did Sophie do in the heat? I, I beat her by 0.03. Okay. Yeah, so it was very close. Um, and initially her time didn't come up for some reason, and so we were kind of, like, in limbo waiting to see who came first. And I actually, I was in the same heat as her, so I was side by side with her. And it looked like she had come first and then I came up on the scoreboard that I came first so I was a little bit like I'm nearly annoyed that I came first because now that's going to like stir the beast in her because she is kind of like that yes okay yeah and I was like I kind of wish I didn't win because now she's going to be like even more ready to beat me and what is the heat doing is is it in order to place you guys for the race or yeah, it's also to drop people. So uh, there were, there was, I think there was three heats. There could have been two heats. Um, but for the final, there's eight people in a final. So that's only, there. you do, use eight lanes. Before the heats, there was like 16, maybe 20 okay. swimmers. So, so you the had top to eight. Yeah. Number, right, okay. Yeah, so the top eight fastest times. And then um, your time dictates what lane you're in. So the fastest would be lane four. Second fastest would be lane five third fastest would be lane three and it would kind of like spearhead out mm-hmm. and that also means when you're walking out they call out your name and you walk out the slowest would come out first so they're kind of waiting around for the fastest person to come out um, right got it and you, you the fastest person kind of dictates when the referee will say take your marks or when everyone gets on the block because they walk out last they have to take off their clothes make sure their hat and goggles are okay. So they're already behind everyone else. So they're just taking their time and Doing everyone is base. waiting and on And were them. you that person? Yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so I was that person, but I didn't, um, I didn't take too long. I... Do some people milk it like? Some people milk it, but that's what Sophie did. So Sophie came out before me and she still wasn't undressed by the time I came out. I don't know. That's like she was nearly trying to control it, it felt. But that just kind of gave me more confidence because I wasn't worried about her. It kind of showed that she was trying trying to be Pepsi around the Coke. Yeah, yeah. Or trying to be Coke when she was Pepsi. Yeah, it kind of just felt like she was doing these things because she was worried. Yeah. Um, So that kind of just 
gave me more confidence. Yeah, more confidence. And then when the race happened itself, I dove in and my goggles filled with water, um, which isn't what you want. <laughs> During the race? As soon as I dove in, yeah. Oh um, my God. But like, it just meant I couldn't see her. So that kind of took that control. what you were doing either. Yeah. Or, well, you didn't. I had spent so long training, counting my strokes. So I knew how many strokes it would take me to get to the wall. So I just focused on that. And then for the fi- for the last 50, it was more just Did about... both fill up or just one eye? Both. Oh my God. Yeah. So I was kind of, I could very vaguely see things. So on the turn, I could see, because I, I turned to the left and she was on my left. So as I turned, I could see her like right with me as I turned because I could just see like a black blur. Right. Um, And then I could see the bottom of the pool a little bit. So I knew where the wall would have been at the end. But other than that, I couldn't see anything going on around Do you me. think that if your goggles hadn't done that you would have been even faster? No, I think I might have been slower. Oh wow, because you were like fighting this obstacle yeah. that had happened. Yeah, I was nearly I, I think I would have just been a little bit, I don't know, like I could have freaked out a bit, I could have seen her because she was ahead of me at the turn Okay, and that could have made me panic and when you're trying to race in water, you're trying to catch as much water as possible um, and when you panic, you don't catch water so it kind of just made me focus more on myself. And in the past, I'd be worried about people around me or what they're doing. So, so you're doing 100 metres in a 50 metre pool. So that means you only have one turn. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So and do you know at what point you passed her out? You didn't see it, but have you watched it back? I've watched it back now, yeah. <laughs> how, how close was it? Uh, I think it was like with 20 metres to go, I started to overtake her. But it was even at the turn, like her turn wouldn't be as... It would kind of be as quick, but she wouldn't get as much power off the turn because okay. she has one leg, whereas I'm pushing off the wall with two legs. So my my turn would have been stronger than, stronger than hers and I would have come up right beside her. So it was literally just head to head for the whole thing. And then I think it was like the last 20 metres, I finally overtook her. And How much did you one. beat her by? I think she went a 120 point... I don't know what the point was. I think it was a low 120 and I went a 119.9. So it would have been less than half, less than half a second. Yeah. It's incredible. <laughs> and so you finish. Then what happens? So you're um, there at the wall. So uh, in Tokyo in particular, it's not every pool that has this, but the, the diving blocks in Tokyo would light up depending on where you came. So when I finished, I saw that there was two lights on her block, which meant she, she came, came second. second. So that meant I came first. <laughs> but you saw her, her two before you saw your one. Yeah. Oh my God, amazing. <laughs> That's how I knew straight away. I, I saw the two lights on her block um, and I turned around and I saw my 119. So I was actually just so much more relieved at the 119. And then I realised I'd kind of won gold. But it was, it was nearly sad in a way because the crowd wasn't there. You didn't okay. get that whole experience. It was more like a private thing that you were going through. Um. And my teammates even said, like, you didn't react the way we wanted you to react. Like one of the, my teammates, Barry, wanted me to get on the lane ropes and like make punch a the big air and, fuss yeah, yeah. and have like so many photo ops. Um, but I just didn't feel the need to do it because I, I, I knew I was capable of it for so long. So it was just kind of me finally reaching my potential. And I said it to my friend afterwards. It was nearly like I just kind of stepped into the role I was always supposed to have. Um. So, like, I had always thought that I'd retire after Tokyo. But as soon as I did that, I was like, no, I really like this. <laughs> so are you, what's next? Paris 24. Okay. Yeah. So, so I've already committed to that. And does that mean, so do you get to take, like, how long do you, because I said how much are you training at the moment and you laughed. So when does the, <laughs> like, Paris ramp up, the prep start? It actually really starts today. So I, when I came home, I had, I didn't swim at all when I came home initially. And then I do like one session a week. Um, I, I just miss it. Like I don't like the lack of structure. I don't. Yes. And the longer you leave it, the harder it's going to be when you come back. So I've only ever, I've only done like one gym session now that I'm back. And I'm, that was last week and I'm still in bits from it. Oh my God. And do you have a coach who does it with you or are you training on your own? No, I have a coach. Yeah. So my coach was in Tokyo with us. Um, thankfully his name is Dave Malone and then my gym coach is Kieran uh, Kyo and he would be making my gym sessions and sending them to me and then I'd go off and do them on my own that's gas because I just cannot do them on my own I have to have my PT with me because <laughs> I just get so bored um, okay so you're training now and it will so what are the next milestones that we can follow you to see if you're like is it guaranteed that you'll be competing because you've 
one. No, uh, no, no definitely you still have not. to make yeah. times and stuff. Well, you, there's loads of things that can happen in between. You can get injured. I am an older athlete now compared to... What the, age are you? I'm 26, but... Older athlete. I, I love know, that, but, but like, it is. I'm, I am the oldest female swimmer, Irish swimmer at the moment. Like, that's really sad for yeah. me like uh, that was one of the things that I, I I struggled with a lot was that my peers were like 15 16 yeah just people girls tend to drop off um when they finish school and go to college which is really sad and they lose interest in it and like it, it's sad to see because there is so much potential beyond like for so like for my secondary school years I didn't PB I didn't get any faster but I just stuck stuck at Stop it at it yeah yeah and like 13 years after my first games I finally win a gold medal like it does take time but you can but eventually you get, get there. there Um, and I just don't want people to keep thinking that they've reached their peak when they haven't and so are you so you'll have European Championships World Championships and then 2024 um, no, but because of the pandemic, we're having a World Championships next June in Madeira and then we'll have another World Championships in 2023 and then we'll have Paris. Paris 24. Yeah. It's so exciting. I cannot wait to follow your journey. <laughs> if people want to follow along and, you know, keep up with you, where can they find you? Um, I'm on Instagram at Keen underscore Ellen and it's the same on Twitter. I'm so excited. I'm so excited for Paris to follow well, you. Well, it's very close, so you can come. <laughs> yeah. Well, do you think they'll... Do you think it'll be oh, I hope to God it'll all be open by then Well it's years away like it's two and a half years they have two and a half know, years to like, figure it out But we're two years <laughs> into this thing and we thought it was going to be over Ellen Keane thank you so much I think the country is incredibly proud of you and uh, not even just well having spoken to you now not even just for the win but just your attitude um, and all that you do for you know people who are also you know for athletes who are young and thinking, oh, this is it. Like, I'm I'm going to give up now because there's nothing ahead of me to mm-hmm. show. I mean, 26 is still incredibly young. But as for sports, it, it's not, obviously, mm-hmm. if you're the oldest. So congratulations and thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And thank you for listening to another episode of Basically. Ellen was amazing. If you want to message her, you want to message in, you've got any other questions, you can send them to basically at headstuff.org. We are part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Our music is by Only Ruin. Our graphic design is by Kahalogara. Catch you next week. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.